Hey, I already know this is not your favorite topic. I get it. But I think this episode is probably among the most important business topics for us to put on the table. Far too often, we shy away from the numbers. And if shying away from numbers sounds like you, I want today to be the day that you put an end to this fear and finally face it head on. I want you to not only understand the math behind your business, but I also want you to get strategic with it. Because working for free is just simply not an option if you are in this for the long run. Am I right? If you're building an empire, you need to really know your costs and your margins. You need to set revenue goals and you need to measure your results. Oh, and you can't be shy with the tax man either. Because here's the thing, shying away from the numbers puts you and your business at a very serious risk. So it's time to stop cringing and start embracing the math of things. And hey, there's a silver lining to this. Once you know your numbers and get comfortable with them, it will allow you to find clarity and confidence, the kind that will give you the knowledge you need to say yes to the right opportunities and no thanks to the things that might not align with your business goals. And listen, I already know that you could use all the help you can get with that simple little two-letter word we call no. So today's guest, Donna Maserol, is here to help you navigate your way through all of this. Donna shares her story of needing to overcome her own fears in order to find her way into the world of business accounting. And now she helps business owners just like you face the numbers head on and get on track for success. There are so many tangible tips, strategies, and takeaways from this episode. I'm pretty sure it is just the kick in the pants you probably need. And I'm also pretty sure that after listening, you'll be ready to take that money bull by the horns and shoot your business for the stars. So are you ready to crunch some numbers? You're listening to the Workshop Weekly Podcast, the show where no dream is too big and no topic is too small. Around here, we believe that taking imperfect action rules. So we're creating space for you to dive in and fast track your success one workshop at a time. Now, refill your coffee cup, grab your notebook, and get ready to join in on your weekly training, listen to meaningful conversation, and learn from industry experts. Here's your host, Kelly Lawson. Hello, Donna. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited to talk to you about all things money and numbers today. How are you? I'm great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So why don't we get started with talking about you? How did you come to be the financial guru and advisor that you are today? It's funny, you know, I thought about that before coming here and I've kind of taken the long, arduous route to get (laughs) anywhere. Let's just say I wasn't the most studious of high school students, kind of graduated I wouldn't say middle of the pack, lower end, and uh, 1982. And then 1984, I thought, geez, I don't want to wait on tables anymore. Went back to school. Never before that did I ever apply myself. I didn't think I was smart. And I started working. And probably took me 10 years to realize I was actually pretty smart. And, you know, went back to high school for a year, went to community college for two years, and then started on my path to uh, get my professional designation and uh, didn't finish that until 1994. So from 84 to 94 was kind of like my getting myself a credential. And then after that, I uh, worked in industry for 18 years. 
industry is really different than public practice. In industry, as I kind of rose up the ranks, I ended up being chief financial officer for a couple of larger companies, multi-million dollar companies. In that role, my job was to make sure that we hit the bottom line. So I was to hold all the other senior management team accountable to make sure we hit that bottom line. And that's very different than doing tax returns and year ends. So that's where I had fun. I love it. And I'm really happy that you addressed the fact that you had some mindset work that you had to overcome before you could get to where you are today. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I know that this is something that listeners consistently struggle with. They don't think they're smart enough. They don't think they're good enough. They don't think they're capable. They think that they have to show up perfectly and that's what holds them back. So do you have any secrets that you can share for listeners who might have some mindset blocks that they need to overcome? Well, I've had my children late, so I've got a 13-year-old that just started high school. So she'll be 14 this year and challenging when you make those huge transitions. And uh, she said to me, you know, but you were smart. And I looked at her and said, you saw my home report. Oh, right. No one in my family had gone on afterwards. Education, you know, was not a priority. So it was get through high school, get a job. And I saw other people going on. I thought, well, you know, I could do that. I could try. And I just didn't care if I failed. And I just tried. And I thought, you know, if, and then I think it was, I know exactly when I realized I was smart. And I was, I was like 27 years old. Wow. And I was having a meeting with a partner of a large firm. And I was working with the tax department then at CRA as an auditor. And we were having a conversation about this audit I was conducting. And I knew more than the tax partner did on that particular file, which blew me away. So from that point on, I kind of thought, oh, maybe I'm not so dumb. (laughs) Maybe you have what it takes. And look at you now. So can we now talk a little bit about what you do day to day now to help your clients? I think I ask tough questions and then I listen. Mm -hmm. And then I ask more tough questions and then I listen more. I've been at this for 30 years or more, which is kind of hard to believe. But I think, you know, understanding what people want as their level of success. So what I want for my success could be very different than what someone else's wants. So it's to understand what their goals are and then helping them to move down the path to achieving them. So the big thing I always tell people, if you can't make it happen on paper with numbers, you're never going to make it happen in the real world. Mm -hmm. So you need to have at least that level. And that's what I enjoy the most is helping people kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together so that they can work away at where they want to be. Absolutely. So let's get started with the good stuff. Let's assume that somebody listening is either started in business and maybe didn't give the attention that they needed to to the numbers of things, or maybe somebody is thinking about getting started in business and they want to get started off on the right foot. What advice do you have for these listeners? It's funny, you know, whenever I meet with a new client, I usually spend probably an hour, an hour and a half with them. And we just sit and chat and talk about, you know, where they are, where they want to be, those types of things. And 90% of that conversation is not around accounting. It's It starts off pricing. That is, I say, 98% of the time where people get it wrong. So you need to know pricing. You need to make sure you have money in the bank. And you need to know that you're achieving the success that you want. But the thing that most people get wrong is the pricing part. So maybe they know what it's going to cost them or they think they know. And maybe they know where their customers are, but they haven't really thought about other things. So you don't know what you don't know. 
and you're not having someone to challenge you on those things. So asking those questions, making sure that the thought process is there. I think back, this is going way back, I had a gentleman come into my practice and he was introduced to me by somebody else, a member of the family, and we were chatting. He was, you know, in his terms, running a very successful business. He was working all the time, but had no money in the bank. His payables were bigger than his receivables. And he was working like a dog and not taking a paycheck. So right off the bat, I knew there was a problem. And we had the conversation and what was wrong is his pricing. He had done all kinds of analysis and thought he had it down but he missed a couple of small things and that made the difference between profit and going bankrupt. Mm-hmm. And he ended up closing the business not long afterwards. There was just it was too late. It was there was no ability to recover what mm-hmm. the losses were. Mm-hmm. And you know, had he had those little pieces fixed earlier, that wouldn't happen. Totally. And so obviously he wasn't appropriately considering the costs to running his business. I think that's maybe what you're getting at there. So what recommendations do you have for listeners who are listening and thinking like, oh, hang on, I'm not sure if I'm doing this right. I'm not sure if I have a clear picture of how I should be pricing my products or services. I'm not even sure if I've accounted for all of my expenses. What steps do you recommend that business owners take to make sure that they're not going to make the same mistake as this guy did? You know, in his particular situation, he made a couple of assumptions. The big assumption was that his staff, because he had a fair-sized staff, probably 10 or 12 people, that they actually billed 40 hours a week. Well, they didn't bill 40 hours a week. They billed about 34. So there was six hours a week that was not billable. So he thought he was generating revenue when he wasn't. And he didn't put in all the factors. So he sold time. So when you sell time, you think, okay, well, I'm paying them X number of dollars. I had a little bit of overhead and that kind of covers it, but it doesn't. This work safe, this EI, this CPP, this training, this vacation, this all those other things that went into it. So in his particular situation, he was billing out of staff at like $38 an hour and his break even for them was 55 So for every hour his people worked, it cost him $20. Ouch. Yeah. So... Can I tell someone how to do that? No, not without sitting down having a conversation. You know, if you're selling widgets product, it's a little easier because if you pay $10, you should sell it for at least 20 or more. Mm -hmm. You know, if the market will bear 30, good for you. If it's only going to pay, if it costs you 10 and you can sell it for 15, well, you've got to make sure that you can have a pretty good volume in there to make that worth your while because most small businesses need to have a gross profit of 40, 50% to survive. You know, Costco, Walmart, they're in a whole different world. But we, small to medium-sized enterprises, that's kind of a rule of thumb. So Kelly, you know, we're talking about pricing. And, you know, I talk to people and I say, you know, the best-selling car in Canada is not the least expensive car. Right now, it's the Honda Civic. So when you look at the Honda in that class, it's actually at the higher end. So if you're going to compete on price alone, there's always it's going to be someone that's going to be cheaper than you. It's going to happen. So you need to compete on value for service. So I don't buy stuff because it's the least expensive. I buy it because I think it's the most valuable. You know, it's the best spend for my dollar. And you need to find customers that value your product or service the exact same way. Because if they're only going on price, they're going to jump ship as soon as Jane Smith or Joe Smith opens up down the street and is $2 less. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, you can't do business that way. You need to find people that see value in what you deliver. Absolutely. And I think, too, sometimes it's difficult for entrepreneurs who are getting started to understand what the costs truly are. And full disclosure, I didn't go through this exercise myself until about two years ago. And to be fair, I was just kind of winging it at that point. I looked, I did some analysis, I did some market research, I did a competitive analysis to make sure that my prices were somewhat similar to what the market had on offer. And then I did my own deep dive into what my costs were. And I realized that from based on what I was charging, about 40% of that was something that I could pay myself. So if I was charging $100 an hour, it meant that I could potentially pay myself $40 an hour when I considered all of the expenses. And I know that that was a tricky thing too with staff because when we were billing out based on the hourly rate to have them provide the services, they were kind of wondering, well, how come I'm only getting paid this much? And I know as a previous service provider in healthcare, I used to wonder similar things. Well, I know that this is what the billable rate is. Why am I only getting this much? And I think that's a perfect explanation as to, and I think something that is often overlooked in business that there's a lot of expenses that you don't even see, like the ones you mentioned, CPP and all of these different taxes that come off of what you're charging the customer. Well, then add a vehicle, add tools, add, you know, tablets to bill your clients. I mean, it's not inexpensive. I had this conversation with a client that couldn't understand why I was charging what I was charging for a particular service. And they wanted me to cut my rates. And I said, I can't. I know what I need to bill to make money. And giving it to you for what you want it for, I'm not going to service you at a loss. And, you know, some people stay and others go, but that's okay. I don't need to pay people and me work for free. (laughs) That's not, that's not the goal. And that's where I want everyone to be. So, and you know, there's other things, right? I mean, we talked a bit about pricing, but you know, money in the bank. So people will, I've had someone say to me, well, I'm making a profit. How come I have no money in the bank? Well, you can make a profit and you can pay tax, corporate tax, personal tax, whatever, and still not have enough money to pay all your bills. So, you know, if you buy too much equipment or buildings, if you have too much inventory, right? Inventory is not supposed to be 100% of revenue. <laughs> I use, a, I have this little thing called, or you bought something that was really sexy that you don't need. Mm-hmm. I've seen clients buy sexy things and they have to generate a significant amount of revenue to pay for it. And it, their clients don't care. Mm-hmm. And after six months or a year, they're like, oh, well, that was a mistake. Absolutely. And, you know, you still have to make those payments. So what you spend on inventory, oh, the other one was accounts receivable. I forgot about that one. You can have people owe you a ton of money and, you know, you not have any money in the bank because of that. So receivables, inventory, capital equipment, things you don't really need, needs versus wants, right? Mm -hmm. If your customer sees it as a valuable thing, then it's needed. If your customer doesn't care, it's a want. And do you really want that? Absolutely. If you're making an investment, it should hopefully be because it's going to bring you more return in your business. But now that we're talking about it, how do listeners know if they can afford something or not? How do you recommend that businesses go ahead and make capital investments or buy new tools and equipment for their businesses and do it in a way that you know, mitigates risk so that they don't end up in a tricky situation. So 
I do some work for Economic Development Greater St. John. I'm their chief financial officer in residence. And I do some training for entrepreneurs. And I also do some consulting with their clients that they see as have significant growth potential. And one of the things I go through is I help them understand what their gross margin is by different products. So for example, Kelly, you're going to sell hand sanitizer and it costs you a dollar and you're going to sell it for $2. Well, when you do the math, and we're not going to talk about what the math is, that would mean that you would have a 50% gross margin on that product. So if you were going to go buy a piece of equipment and you said, okay, that piece of equipment is going to be $1,000 a month. You would have to sell $2,000 a month to pay that $1,000 payment. And you get that by figuring out the payment divided by your gross margin percentage. And it tells you. So it's awesome when I'm in training courses and I give this to people and they're saying, well, I wanted to buy this $10,000 piece of equipment. Or I want to make this investment in a leasehold improvement. It's going to cost me $2,000 a month. Well, if your gross margin percentage is only 30%, that's a big number in new revenue just to come pay for Mm -hmm. that. So you've got to know that you can Mm -hmm. actually hit that. So those types of things, the math can be done. It's not a perfect science, but it's a great dart throw. And in business, you don't have to be 100%. If you can hit 80, you're going to adjust for that last little 20. And, you know, most people never get to that. You know, if you're at 80, 85% accuracy, you're doing really awesome. And how do you recommend that people decide what to pay themselves? Because I know, especially with freelancers who are in the service industry, I think they really struggle with knowing how much to pay themselves and, you know, how they can do that in a way that keeps the tax man happy and also keeps their business running. As much as humanly possible. (laughs) So one of the other things I do when I do this training thing is I do what I call a bottom up. So entrepreneurs, and I did the same thing, you know, when I was early on, I did not factor in what I needed to be paid. And we all need to do that. So we need to factor in the owner's salary, and then work your way up to what that gross revenue number needs to be so you can hit that. So if you don't have a target, it's kind of like driving to Toronto. If you don't have a map or GPS, thank God, (laughs) then you're never going to get to Toronto, you're going to end up in New York or Montreal or Ottawa or someplace. So the big thing is, is to kind of factor all that in, including what you think you're worth. Now, I always tell people, well, they say, well, you know, I can't because that's, I don't have that revenue yet, but you need to have that number so you can make your plan to get there. And that's my thing is that, you know, figure out what that top line needs to be and then work your tail off to get that top line. Because if you do the top line, everything else is going to work out in between, as long as you don't have too much inventory or too much receivables. Right. And by top line, you mean? Revenue. Okay. So would you recommend that people start by laying it all out first, laying out your revenue goals, laying out what you'd like to pay yourself, laying out what you'd like to buy for your business, and then setting your targets that way? Well, I mean, the thing is, is that Your revenue has got to be the last thing you figure out. So you need to figure out what your costs are. You've got to make sure that you put an adequate owner's salary because anybody, you know, that's the thing with entrepreneurs. We're all going to work our tails off, but we need to get rewarded at some point and we need to be able to provide for our families. And if you're always working for nothing, then you're going to walk away after a certain point in time. So figure out your costs, figure out what's a reasonable salary, and then where you want to be in 
two years, three years, five years, whatever. And then will the market support this revenue that I need? Right. So it's kind of, you know, you're instead of saying this is what the market has and this is what it's going to cost me to do it. And this is what I'm going to have left over. I don't want you to figure out what's left over. I want you to figure out what you need and then go after and see, is the market there? Will it support it? If it doesn't, based on what I have now, what can I modify to get there? Right. Because some things you're going to make more money on than others. And those little shifts, right? Pivots, those little pivots. COVID has taught us. When I look at my clients and how they've pivoted over the last six months, it's just amazing. Mm -hmm. So it's about those little pivots. But if you don't figure out that, oh, I need to gross $150,000 a year because I need to take $60,000 as a paycheck and I need the rest to pay the expenses. And, you know, you're going along and you think, oh, well, hundred's good. Well, hundred's only going to put twenty-five dollars or $30,000 in your pocket. Mm-hmm. And there's always three plans, the bank's plan, the most realistic plan, and then the stretch goal. And you always should have a stretch goal. Mm-hmm. And what's a stretch goal? Stretch goal is you making $250,000 a year or more or whatever, like something that you're hitting it out of the park. Okay. So that you're always kind of challenging yourself and moving yourself where you want to go, depending. Like, so for me, I have a young family. I'm a single mom. Free time is a huge asset or it's of huge value to me because I'm only going to have my kids for a few more years. So I don't want to work 80 hours a week to put more money in my pocket. I want to be able to hang out with my kids and do cool stuff. Mm -hmm. I still need to pay for it. So I need to make enough money, but I don't need to. You don't need to trade your time for money. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. You know, that Maslow's hierarchy needs. Mine are fine. I see. So for listeners who maybe haven't taken the plunge into fully understanding what their business expenses are, how can they get started with that? The easy part of your business expenses are going to be what I call your recurring things. So those are your phone, internet, you know, if you're going to rent a space, those are the thing we call those overhead and they happen every month, whether you sell something or you don't. So those are the ones that, you know, you should spend the least amount of time on because you can throw a dart and get pretty close to know what you're going to net your phone and your rent and those kinds of things are the, the challenging part is what you sell. So if you sell time, your own time is different than if you're paying an employee because you can adjust for yourself. Whereas when you're paying someone, they're not going to work 80 hours and get paid for 30. Mm -hmm. Whereas as the owner of the business, you may do that, especially early on to build your brand and build your market share. So that's a challenge. Now, if you're selling product, it's a little easier because you're buying something and then you're reselling it. Mm -hmm. Making sure that you understand how big your market is. I've seen people with great ideas that would work in Toronto or New York try to do that in St. John, New Brunswick, and it, the market's just not there mm-hmm. because there's 120,000 mm-hmm. people, not 5 million or 100 million. So you really have to know, you know what your market scope is and how many people there are that are going to want your product. Mm-hmm. And what the potential volume of sales is going to be. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've been dealing with a client recently that it's at the other end. Demand exceeds supply. And, you know, they've been giving discounts. And I'm like, why? You know, there's no reason to give a discount, Mm -hmm. right? 
they can't go anywhere. <laughs> You're the, um, not just, you know, not the only one, but one of the better ones. And they can't go anywhere else. So why are you giving them a discount? It's not like, you know, they're not living in the Taj Mahal. They're not worth hundreds of millions of dollars. So, you know, you've got to kind of balance all of that. Mm-hmm. And some of it, you know, we we think we're our customers and we're not. Mm-hmm. I go back to, I think of a client that I had. This is probably 15 years ago and someone outside of St. John. So in this particular business, they were a decorator, but their primary, they had, they resold stuff, products, but what they did was mostly custom draperies. So when they went out to meet someone, custom drapes, like $10,000, $15,000 for their living room to have drapes hung. So when they were going out, you know, I said, where do you make the most money on this particular job? And it was on the fabric. But they were taking fabric that they were selling for 30 or $40 a meter. Well, if they were making the most money off fabric, but they were taking the least expensive fabric. And I said, so this is your customer. You know that person. Yeah. And I said, give them a choice. Take the stuff you think that is going to be out of the park and go sell it or go see if they would want it. Give them the choice between the $30 fabric and the $100 fabric. They never sold another meter of fabric for under $100 because their customer wasn't price sensitive. Mm-hmm. They wanted that quality. The cost of the fabric didn't impact the sell price. So, you know, understanding those kinds of things made the big difference between someone that was kind of struggling to someone that was hitting it out of the park. And that's because they were mm-hmm. making $15 a meter before. Now they're making 50 mm-hmm. That's a huge change in profit on that company. Definitely. And I love that you mentioned people offering discounts because I know I'm guilty of this myself. So full disclosure, but I see it all around me as well. And I think sometimes that's what people will go to when they're missing a sales strategy. So they're not really sure how else to sell their product. So they cut their margins and boom, the product goes. But guess what? Now you didn't make any money off of it. So you're working for free. So I think it merits a whole other podcast on talking about sales strategies and ensuring that people you know, are basically exhausting the possibilities when it comes to sales. The very last thing you should be doing is discounting your product. I completely agree with you there. When demand exceeds supply, you do not give a discount. Oh, hello there. Quick question for you. Does taking a great brand or product photo feel like a code you simply can't crack? Do you want to give up trying to create visual assets for your business before you've even started? Well, you're about to discover the secrets to taking powerful brand and product photos while strategically sharing them in a way that will serve your bottom line without adding hours of learning to your already packed up calendar. If you're a business owner, maker, influencer, or affiliate marketer, you already know that showing up online with beautiful imagery is super important. That's why I created this free online training especially for you to level up your brand and create the kind of imagery that catches the eye of your customer, the kind of imagery you can be proud of. During this retraining, you will learn my four-step framework for taking brand and product photos that will help you improve your sales and attract more customers without being salesy. You will also learn the top four mistakes most people make with brand and product photos and why these mistakes are costing them major profits. So, are you ready to up-level your visual brand assets? I thought so. 
For a limited time only, grab your seat for my free training at kellylawson.ca slash free masterclass. That's kellylawson.ca slash free masterclass. I am so excited to be your teacher and I'll see you in class. So when listeners find themselves in a position, let's say that they listen to this podcast, they go back and they crunch their numbers. They really, they write down everything that their business is costing them. They get a good sense of the money going out and the money coming in. Let's say that they realize that there's a discrepancy there and they're running a deficit. What's the first thing that they should do? I would look at what you have as receivables and inventory. So I just had a text message from a client Saturday sending me a note because when we first met 10 or 12 months ago, we reviewed things and I said, you have way too much inventory for what your sales are. You don't need that much. I can't tell you what it, you know, what needs to go, but I can tell you that you need to drop inventory by $150,000. And he sent me a text yesterday. He said, I did it. It's like, wow, that just put $150,000 in your business by doing nothing but managing your inventory better. Right. So look at inventory, look at receivables, because those two things will put cash, one time cash straight into your bank. If you're running a deficit, then you have to look at what you sell and whether it's a service, each individual service or each individual product so that you can determine which ones you're making money on and which ones you're not. Because I'm pretty sure there's some that you're making money off and others that you're not. So then you have to decide how you can either raise the price on the product or service, drop your costs on the product or service, or get rid of it. Because selling something at a loss is the road to bankruptcy. Yes. And ridiculous when you when you say it in a sentence, you know, selling something for a loss. Well, nobody wants that. That's not what we're in this for as much as we'd all love to be charitable. So you said, take a look at your receivables. So let's say that someone listening realizes that, hey, I've actually got all this money tied up in receivables. I don't know what to do. Oh, that's yeah. Even my practice, we've changed our business model since COVID. I will review our client list. And some clients I'm asking for a retainer now where I didn't do that before. Mm -hmm. And it's just because of the change in the industry. But if you have people that always pay late, you know, they don't pay you at 30 days, they pay you at 60, 90 or 120, then you really have to either charge a huge premium to give them those terms because it's very expensive to carry that. Mm -hmm. And not just in you know, what you pay in interest on a line of credit, but the potential to run out of cash to operate your business. So I do it in two ways. One, I always look at the biggest number and then I look at what's oldest. So if something's a huge number and it's 30 days, I don't care. They're going to pay me. But if there's a big number and it's sitting over 60 days, I prioritize those ones first and Mm -hmm. then start making phone calls. What I've learned over doing this for 30 plus years is the faster you get your invoices out, the more often you send statements out, the faster you're going to get your money in. Mm. And so, you know, if you can invoice, not everybody's going to be able to invoice every day. I don't. In my office, it's every two weeks. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you can invoice, send statements out every two weeks, you know, follow up with clients. I hate making phone calls. I hate sending emails, but I do it because it's my money mm-hmm. and I want it. <laughs> mm-hmm. And at the other side of the phone call is it. So if you want to get the money in your account, sometimes you have to do the scary thing. It's all part of entrepreneurship. 
But it's not about being hard-nosed, right? I mean, sometimes people are genuinely in a challenging position. So it's working with them to figure out a repayment arrangement. There was someone that owed me money for a long, long time. And I, in my head, wrote it off 18 months ago. And I'm still getting a few hundred dollars every month. So, you know, it's just they're in a challenging position. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong, I'm not offering additional services without a retainer. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if they pay me for new stuff and they're paying down the old stuff, then they're a great client. Mm-hmm. So for listeners who may not fully understand what a retainer is, can you explain how you're using that in your business now post-COVID? Yeah, so I look at maybe some clients that are going to have challenges cash flow-wise. And, you know, I can because I know their numbers. And their businesses. Mm -hmm. So I just look at it and say, okay, well, you know, our service for them this year is going to be for this particular thing, say, is $1,000. Well, I want them to give me $1,000 before we start working on it. Mm -hmm. Because normally what we do is we do the work, then we bill them, and then 30, 60, 90 days we get paid. Mm -hmm. Well, some of the work that we do can take 6, 8, 10, 12 weeks. Mm -hmm. So I've got, you know, when you look at hundreds of clients... You know, I can have six to eight months worth of work that's at different stages of completion. So if I have to run my business for three months, bill somebody, then get paid a month, two, three months down the road, I can have six months worth of expenses I've already paid for up front. So a retainer gives it to me in advance. So, you know, lawyers do it a lot. Part of the reason is because sometimes people don't pay us when the services are completed, because CRA is happy, whatever. And I've not experienced a lot of that, not in the last five years, but I would say my first 10, I had, I mean, a significant amount of money. Put it this way, I could have had a nice cottage mm-hmm. on the water. Mm-hmm. Tied up in receivables. Well, then I never got paid for. And today that wouldn't happen just because I don't extend that type of credit Mm -hmm. or I would push harder. I mean, I go to small claims court. I do what I need to do to collect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's unfortunately, it's one of the less beautiful parts of being an entrepreneur, but it's something that sometimes you need to do when someone isn't paying you. It, It definitely happens. And it's one of those things that's less talked about. So I'm really happy that we talked about this here today. Can I, if I add one more thing on that, like I'll give you an example. So we have a client that their receivables issue was more around their process. So they didn't have POs properly on their invoices. They didn't send them to the right person inside the organization to get paid. You know, and we stumbled upon it because their receivables were growing. And when we sat down with them and said, you know, your cash flow is really bad. And they're like, oh, what do we do? And I said, well, we got to figure out why. Because the customers were great customers, AAA. In that particular situation, it was around the admin. It wasn't that their customers weren't going to pay them, right? It was their fault in not fulfilling their customers' requirements to get payments. Mm. So once that was resolved, no issues. But, you know, they had three or four months worth of revenue tied up. That's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Totally, completely. And And just because they weren't dotting all the I's and crossing all the T's. Hmm. So once we figured that out and they, you know, we retrained their staff, away they went. 
So you mentioned a little acronym that I know that we need to talk about at least a little bit, and that is CRA. So I know a lot of listeners are definitely feeling very shy and timid and frightened by all things taxes, basically. So I'm wondering what advice you might have for a new entrepreneur or an entrepreneur who's been in business for a while and still fears the tax man. How can they be strategic and make sure that, you know, they're really leveraging the money that they're able to keep in the business? The first thing I tell people, so I used to work there. I was a business auditor for three years, eight months, 11 days. <laughs> so needless to say, it was not, I learned a lot in the first couple of years. And then after that, it was just painful. I don't fit in that environment. But the big thing is don't be greedy. You know, you can be aggressive on your tax planning, but I always tell clients, I'll be aggressive, but I'm not going to be stupid. Mm -hmm. This is a game. You can sit on the fence. You can even lean over the side of the fence, but you're never going to put your foot down on the other side. Mm -hmm. And I think that's very important. I think people need to understand if you want to avoid an audit, file your HST regularly. Pay your payroll remittances and your HSTs as close to on time or on time as possible because those penalties will kill you. Keep your filings up to date. If something happens that throws you offside, call them. I have a client, I swear, nobody else could be as successful. So they had some challenges early on when they started their business with not staying up to date on remittances for HST. Mm -hmm. But CRA has worked with them diligently for five years. And they're still in business. They're growing. CRA is fine. What they do really well is they stay on top of their filings. They're always filed. CRA knows exactly what's going on all the time. And they're paying current 95% of the time now and paying down the old stuff. So if you do that and just keep people informed or keep them informed, that goes a long way. You want to make someone, you know, put the hammer down, like closing bank accounts, seizing assets, those things happen. Ignore them. Don't follow your stuff. You know, just pretend they're not there. So, you know, be the ostrich and put your head in the sand and they're going to come and they're going to kick you hard. Mm -hmm. So rule of thumb, stay in constant communication with CRA. And it sounds like, especially if maybe things aren't up to date and you're not keeping up with things the way that you should, just give them a phone call. Stay yeah, in touch. And if you're not comfortable doing that, have a service provider that will do it for you. Because sometimes, you know, you don't want to give too much information either, right? Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit more about that. What might be too much information? Oh, you know, I mean, I've had clients that have been audited. And sometimes it's like any profession, you're going to have a bell curve. So you're going to have 50% below the line. So what I call substandard and 50% that are above the line. Well, that's the same as CRA as it is in any other profession, whether you're an accountant, a doctor, a lawyer, you know, someone that sweeps the street, whatever. Every profession has that line. And, you know, you may get someone that's substandard and, you know, they will take out of context something you tell them. So they're only listening for the downside to you and the upside to their stats. So CRA tracks stats. They track what the recovery is. If they get a great recovery, even if it's turned over in appeal, and appeals are won 75% of the time. I want everybody to know that. Do not be afraid to appeal. 
I have been successful in every appeal I've done for any of my clients. But that person gets a great stat, even though it's overturned under appeal. So if you get someone that's substandard, they may just do things because their numbers are bad and they need them to look better. And I hate to say that, but it does happen. So in terms of, I guess, staying organized in your business, I know some listeners are probably thinking like, oh my goodness, you know, I don't know. I don't know what I should claim as a salary. I don't know what to claim as expenses. I don't know how much money I can be spending in my business. Like, what are a few rules of thumb for staying in the good books and I guess leveraging or optimizing your cash flow when it comes to CRA and tax time? So whatever you collect on HST, you're most likely going to pay 70% of that back to CRA. Mm-hmm. So that's a general rule of thumb. So if you collect $1,000 in HST, $700 is going to have to go to CRA. So put that aside somewhere. Mm -hmm. It's very different if you're a corporation or if you're a proprietorship on how you're taxed. Mm -hmm. So a proprietor that has $100,000 or $150,000 in profit is going to pay significantly more tax than a corporation that has $100,000 or $150,000. So, you know, that's kind of hard. Now, if you're incorporated, put yourself on a paycheck. Mm -hmm. Give yourself a T4 if you can, if the cash flow is stable enough to do that. Mm -hmm. Don't take a lot of money out if the company still owes you money. But remember that if you have staff, the money that you're withholding from them, from their paycheck, and the money that you're supposed to send as the employer for Canada Pension and EI, that's not your money. Those are funds held in trust. Same thing with the HST that you collect. So that money is just like when you give money to a lawyer and you're buying a house and you say, here, Joe Lawyer, I'm giving you $100,000 for Jane's house. You expect that the lawyer is going to disperse what needs to be dispersed and the rest goes to Jane. Well, that's CRAs. That's what GST and payroll are. You're holding their money in trust, just like the lawyer's holding Jane's money. If you don't give it to them, they can come after you and take your house. They can take your bank accounts. They can take your personal stuff if you're a director of the company. So it's really important to keep track of those. Income tax, corporate tax, not as risky, but people think they can declare bankruptcy and the HST's gone and the payroll's gone. That's not the case. They will come after you personally if you owe a significant amount of money. With HST? HST or payroll remittances, yes. Mm-hmm. Good to know. So Donna, I always like to wrap up these episodes with like something actionable that listeners can do. So I'm wondering if you have like one action that listeners can take after listening to everything that you had to say to either get started on the right track with their business finances, or if they're already in business and they feel like their finances are maybe not as good as they could be, what's an action that they could take to get things back on the right track? Know your numbers. And I don't mean how to do accounting, because that's, if you can make money, you're going to pay somebody to do your accounting. I don't do my own accounting, right? And I'm an accountant. Mm -hmm. But you need to understand your costs, right? Know what other people are charging and know where you're at in the life cycle of a product. So if you're at the start, you can coin it. Think of VHS machines, if people even know what they are anymore. Nobody has a DVD (laughs) player. But, you know, back in the 80s, these ridiculously huge, ungodly tape machines we used to watch movies on were like $1,300 or $1,500. Today, Mm -hmm. you couldn't buy one because you can go buy a little DVD player for $30 or $40 if you can even buy one of those. Mm -hmm. But at that point in time, 
people were spending fourteen, fifteen hundred dollars, which you know today would be three thousand. So if you're at the start of a product, price accordingly. Mm-hmm. If demand exceeds supply, raise your price because you're going to lose some customers. Don't get me wrong, but you're going to work less. And you're going to make more money. So understanding that, and you need to know what's going to make you money. So as we said earlier. You're going to have some products that you're going to make a lot of money on. You're going to have some that you're going to make next to nothing on. Figure out if you can cut down on the ones you don't make as much money on so you can maximize the ones that you do. You Mm -hmm. might, you know, it's not always cut and dry, but sell more of the stuff you make the most money on. Mm -hmm. And the first step is to know your numbers so that you have something to measure. If you're not able to measure whether or not you're making any money or not, you missed the first step. (laughs) And I have to take my own medicine. So it's so funny because I do these training things with edge and every time I come back from doing that I rejig my whole plan because I'm thinking I'm telling them they need to do it so I need to do it too. Mm -hmm. Donna thank you so much for sharing all of your expertise and your stories with us today. I think that this has been an invaluable episode for my listeners because they tend to be people who are definitely afraid of the money and afraid of the numbers and I'm really glad that you were able to kind of break it down and make it a little less scary today so thank you so much for that. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for inviting me. Ah, This conversation with Donna is just so needed. I hope in the very least it has left you feeling encouraged to talk about the hard stuff because it is from doing these tough things that you will grow and succeed. For more on how to get in touch with Donna or to find other resources mentioned in this episode, please visit kellylawson.ca slash 034. And until next week, keep on slaying your biggest goals. And don't forget, your biggest success will be found on the other side of your fears. So please don't be afraid to show up imperfectly. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Workshop Weekly Podcast, the show where no dream is too big and no topic is too small. If you like our show and want to know more, check out www.theworkshopweekly.com or leave a review on iTunes. And we'll see you next week for another action-packed episode, you workshop warrior you.